Okay, thanks, Stan, and uh, welcome, comrades, to another momentous week in uh, British politics. You know, it wasn't so long ago I lived through the um, the biggest parliamentary defeat um, suffered by any government in history. That was Theresa May's uh, Brexit deal. Uh, now we've got the shortest prime minister ever. And what we're talking about is not height. We're talking about <laughs> days, 44 days. Uh, it's uh, quite frankly um, stunning. Um, so, you know, within, within a very short time, uh, we'll know who are, let me get it right, is it fifth uh, Tory prime minister in a row is going to be more of that um, in a minute, because what I want to do really, uh, just to begin with, is to ask the question, why? Why uh, did Liz Truss uh, only last 44 days? And I think the answer is pretty obvious. I will call it, for the sake of shorthand for the moment, the market. Um, and then we can talk about it in terms of... Uh, uh, Quasi Kwarteng's mini budget. Um, and, you know, according to Socialist Worker, um, let me get the quote right, the bankers uh, were using their power. Um, I fundamentally disagree because here we had a budget, uh, a mini budget, albeit, uh, that promised to abolish the uh, cap. Um, on um, City of London bankers, what bonuses uh, they could get. Here we had a, a mini budget that was going to abolish uh, the 45%, uh, the 45 pence in a pound uh, uh, tax uh, take all the way down the line uh, when it came to income tax. There were handouts and obviously the richer uh, you were, the more you were going to benefit. Um, so you would have thought uh, as an individual banker, uh, you would definitely welcome that. And that's why I think it's a mistake uh, to talk about the power of bankers as if this was a series of individual votes uh, on the mini budget. To me, what we actually have to deal with is at a higher level uh, of abstraction. And we have to turn uh, to capital, um, both the book, uh, and the concept, and back to uh, not only Marx's mature writings, so-called, uh, but also his early writings, where he talked about capital, uh, you know, having a personality uh, in its own right, of being a thing. Marx even talked about uh, uh, capital being the real god uh, um, of bourgeois society. And what he meant by that wasn't simply... Uh, the individual capitalist worship uh, capital. What he meant by that is that capital uh, itself uh, takes on the form of both being the master of the individual capitalists, including individual uh, bankers, but also actually having a personality uh, in its own right. And what the personality of capital is, is a consumer, a, a, a vampire uh, that's never satisfied uh, in terms of sucking uh, 
um, surplus value uh, out of uh, the immediate uh, producers. It's a personality uh, that is interested and driven by self-expansion. Uh, and that both includes forcing uh, wages or attempting to force wages down towards zero, but at the same time wanting to expand consumption. So we have this two-way pull uh, in terms of this personality uh, that's called uh, capital. And it was the judgment of capital uh, that was involved uh, over Kwasi Kwarteng's uh, budget, not individual uh, bankers saying, I don't want my bonus cut. Uh, I don't want, uh, um, you know, this uh, 45%, um, you know, tax uh, band abolished. As individuals, they certainly did. But no, what we actually had, of course, with this uh, mini budget is 100 billion uh, in terms of the energy crisis, plus 40 billion uh, tax cuts, all unfunded. And basically the judgment of the market, i.e. capital, was this would damage, in spite of all the claims of Kwesi Kwarteng and, and Liz Truss, this would lead to 2.5% uh, economic growth, which is just unfeasible uh, in Britain at the moment, given the world situation. No, the judgment of capital is that this unfunded, uh, um, how should I put it, borrowing, because that's what it was going to be, uh, would actually lead to contraction. And hence we saw uh, the drop in the pound, hence we saw interest rates rise in terms of gilts, that's uh, government bonds, it's what the government uses uh, to get uh, uh, money in. Uh, we saw uh, you know, mortgage companies <laughs> being bailed out uh, by the Bank of England. Uh, we saw panic and uh, you know, once, Quasi uh, uh, Kwartan had delivered his budget, what, what, what we saw is the market capital deliver its judgment um, um, on this budget. Uh, and then we saw uh, the chancellor uh, sacked. We saw a new chancellor brought in. Uh, this is Jeremy Hunt, the former um, health secretary in Britain, the one that presided, remember, over Operation Cygnus. Uh, this was, um, you know, what happens if Britain had a pandemic of some sort? Oh, let's try this out. Oh, dear. Uh, we're swamped. The NHS is swamped. Let's call the operation um, off. In other words, uh, what we had is a health secretary presiding over just-in-time health service, uh, something that was introduced by New Labour. It didn't work when it came to uh, the wargaming exercise, and it didn't work when we actually had uh, a pandemic. Either way, he came in as Mr. Sensible, reversed, as far as I can tell, more or less every single measure uh, that Rishi Sunak uh, had proposed. And, you know, quite frankly, as soon as that happened, you know, no, no, it, didn't take any, it didn't take a genius to work out uh, that Liz Truss uh, was finished. We wrote it. Everybody, you know, was writing it and all we were saying, well, it's only a matter of time. And my take on it certainly was, well, it's going to be earlier rather than later. I mean, how on earth can you have a prime minister who hasn't disagreed with their chancellor uh, when it came to a mini budget or a budget, but actually agreed 
signed up to it, you know, wrote it together, had published a book uh, which they both contributed, uh, where they outlined uh, these measures. It was called Britannia uh, Unchained. And of course, the idea was, it's been tried, hasn't it? You're going to have trickle down uh, economics. Well, we've seen how that's worked. But here's the judgment of the market under these uh, conditions. So how on earth could you have a prime minister uh, carrying on under those circumstances who asked the question, do you approve of the budget that's just been put forward? This is forthcoming i.e. Jeremy Hunt's budget. Oh, yes, I thoroughly approve it. Well, how comes you approved of the budget before that, uh, that this guy, uh, uh, Jeremy Hunt, has completely overthrown, completely trash? It's impossible. So hence, uh, Liz Truss uh, was going to be out. Um, so that, 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 that's uh, no surprise uh, whatsoever. Um, uh, so, yes, um, this wasn't um, some banker's plot. Uh, it's true uh, that we should at least think about uh, what has just happened to Liz Truss. Remember, you know, I was listening, you know, at the time of the budget uh, to the head of the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, not a banker, uh, but, uh, you know, the head of uh, British uh, uh, manufacturing capital to the extent that it actually uh, still exists and thoroughly approving uh, of this mini budget. So, you know, as an individual, a capitalist can say this is a jolly good idea. We believe in trickle down. We believe in tax cuts. Uh, but no, the personality of capital uh, made its own uh, judgment. And of course, that personality doesn't just exist in, you know, in, in the form of bankers in the city of London. It's a global system and the global system uh, passed uh, uh, judgment. Okay, so yeah, I just wanted to comment on uh, uh, what happens. And of course, that was a million to one possibility that there would have been a Jeremy Corbyn government and it would have been John McDonnell of the Socialist Campaign Group that would have delivered a budget. What would have happened to that budget? Well, the same judgment would have been made, except this time the actual personifications of capital, the political and state representatives of capital would have got in on the act uh, to derail and crash uh, the British economy. Um, not only would the market make its judgment on um, John McDonald's proposed budget, so would Mike Pompeo, so would the CIA, so would MI5, so would MI6, uh, so would the majority of the parliamentary Labour Party, uh, well, unless we arranged uh, uh, them all to take a flight in a Boeing 747 just before a general election and then crash uh, the damn thing and get a whole new load of MPs elected, some other science fiction like that. But no, the fact of the matter is uh, that there was no possibility of a Jeremy Corbyn government. But if we stretch our imagination, uh, what we saw with Quasar Kwarteng's mini budget, we would uh, say that you would have seen this a thousand times over uh, with a left uh, reformist government. And whatever John McDonald is saying that, oh, we would have avoided this, he's either a fool or he's a liar. Uh, and I suspect the, uh, the latter. Uh, left reformism uh, is stupid. Uh, the idea uh, that a left reformist government can buck the market, um, you know, while capitalism uh, still exists, uh, in some free form. No, you'd have to impose 
uh, import controls, export controls, restrictions over the movement of capital, I ban it. You'd have to propose direct planning. You'd have to turn Britain into something equivalent uh, to Albania uh, in order to get uh, you know, um, John McDonald's uh, budget uh, operating. And then it wouldn't be his budget uh, uh, anymore, would it? Anyway, what I didn't expect, uh, we don't know yet what's happened. So I've been frantically looking at my um, uh, phone in the run up uh, to this meeting, waiting for the announcement. What I didn't expect and what I actually take full responsibility for uh, in terms of our weekly worker coverage uh, it wasn't the fall of Liz Trust. That was that was obvious to anybody, surely. No, it was the fact that Boris Johnson has thrown his hat in. Uh, we don't know whether he has got 100 MPs backing him. That's the necessary threshold yet. We've got two candidates so far, and that's the former Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. Remember that stabbed Boris Johnson in the back that came first last time round uh, in the contest with MPs. Liz Truss came second, two candidates went to the membership and they elected the right wing headbanger uh, who, uh, you know, I at least thought there was a possibility uh, that Liz Trust was just a cynic and she would write rubbish like uh, Britannia Unchanged along with another cynic called Quasi Quartang and, and a load of others. But when they got into number 10 and in number 11, they would turn around and say, hey, only kidding you. Um, you know, a bit like Keir Starmer standing in front of Labour's uh, membership when Jeremy Corbyn fell on his sword after the 2019 general election when they were given a drubbing and you had this 80 majority, uh, one under the leadership for the Tories by Boris Johnson. Uh, you know, he, he stood in front of Labour members and said, I will commit to um, Jeremy Corbyn's economic programme well, my own personal reaction was to that, come off it, uh, Sir Keir, you're a lying bastard, aren't you? Now, I know some people on the Labour left took him for his word and has since called him a traitor. But quite frankly, you'd have, again, I'm sorry to use the word about the Labour left, but you'd have to be a fool uh, to believe that he wasn't a cynic. And I have to say uh, that at least in part, because, well, I hope I'm not such a fool. I thought that maybe Liz Trust was posing in front of uh, the Tory party rank and file. I don't know how many actually ended up voting, 150,000, whatever the particular figure was, she got a majority, simply on that sort of basis, that she appeals to their right-wing instincts, gets them to vote for her. She's in number 10, you know, Quasi is in number 11, and then they go, well, yeah, but that was for the consumption of the rank and file. Now we have to you know, behave like adults. Well, she clearly believed uh, in this stuff. OK, anyway, the thing that I got wrong uh, was Boris Johnson. I think we've actually got in the paper, and I, as I say, I take personal responsibility for that. I think I actually wrote it in. Uh, but Boris Johnson isn't going to be a candidate. Well, we still don't know, but he's clearly trying to be uh, a candidate. And the reason we don't know, I'm guessing, is in spite of the claims that they're over the 100 threshold, uh, that's been a claim, uh, the fact that he hasn't publicly declared, in my view at least, uh, tells us that he isn't over 
the 100 threshold. Neither, on the other hand, is the first candidate to declare uh, themselves in the race, as far as I know. I think she's on around 40 or thereabouts. That's uh, uh, Penny Morden. Um, so we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, it's as simple as that. You might have um, um, two candidates. Uh, you might have three. You might have one. They, you might end up with a deal. Uh, we don't know. But what we would suspect is that if there's two candidates and one of them is called Boris Johnson, all things being equal at the moment, the expectation uh, would be that Boris Johnson will would win. Now, I think we need to be careful about that, because at least in terms of my reading of the Tory press, uh, it's a split decision. You know, the Times, for example, which is uh, obviously a Murdoch uh, title. And remember, the Tory rank and file don't tend to be sun readers. Uh, they tend to be more telegraph and uh, Times, maybe uh, Daily Mail readers. Um, either way, um, I wouldn't say that Johnson has got it in the bag, but the expectation is that he would do. Uh, the expectation would be uh, that uh, the Tory rank and file would vote for Boris Johnson. And we need to understand the psychology uh, of these people. And it's hard for me to do that. I don't have many friends, certainly many friends that are Tories. Do I have any friends that are Tories? No, in all honesty, I, I, I don't. Uh, but we ought to try to understand them. And what I get, as far as I can understand them, is that Boris Johnson was loved, and I think the word is not misused, in the same way uh, that Margaret Thatcher was loved uh, by the Tory rank and file. Um, so if you went into a Tory party office, and I have, um, you'll find a big portrait of Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher. You used to be able to find pictures of Enoch Powell, uh, as well. But if you went in there now, I very much suspect that you'll find a portrait uh, of Boris uh, uh, Johnson. And that's why Rishi Sunak was hated uh, by the rank and file, because he was seen as a traitor. Why do they love Boris Johnson? It's not just his, you know, um, public school persona, Eton, you know, um, Oxbridge um, and uh, all the rest of it, you know, his... Um, slightly clownish uh, personality. It was the fact that he got Brexit done and the cause that really motivated uh, the Tory rank and file was a hatred of the EU. Uh, they didn't want any halfway houses such as was being proposed by, you know, um, Theresa May. They didn't want any of that. They wanted a clean break. Uh, you know, they want capitalism red in tooth and claw. Uh, and they saw that uh, in Liz Truss. But what we need to understand is in spite of his loving uh, of spending and, uh, you know, evening up and, uh, you know, HS2 and all the rest of it, they loved Boris Johnson. So the, the book is, I, I, I would guess, uh, if he gets through, uh, would say that at least, you know, there's a strong chance of Boris Johnson getting through. And then precisely MPs, even, well, I don't know about the ones that are backing him, if they're backing him, if there's enough of them, but then we've got a situation that Boris Johnson is still in the midst. What do they call it? Uh, party gate, 
Um, he's still being investigated by, you know, the Parliamentary Standards Committee. And you could you could have a situation of where the Tories re-elect him leader. He becomes prime minister. And then the Standards Committee say he's not a fit and proper person to hold office. I know he's got the power then to bat it aside. But, you know, from from a Tory point of view, this is to me, at least as an outsider, and I'm enjoying it, I readily admit, is a case of, you know, those whom the gods wish to destroy first turn mad. Uh, yes, uh, he's loved by the rank and file. Yes, he won an 80 majority. But what would happen in a general election? You know, if he was found not to be a fit and proper person, what happens then? Um, what happens now that we've got a chancellor to all intents and purposes promising austerity to? Uh, or it's not going to be anything like George Osborne. Or, of course it is. Look at the state of British finances. Uh, what we've got is not only an energy crisis, we've got a cost of living uh, crisis. We've got a situation where Liz Trust, I mean, I didn't take anything she took seriously, saying that she's going to keep the triple lock. This is for pensioners, um, that, you know, you've got a lock in in terms of wages, also a lock in in terms of the inflation rate. Well, that's going to cost a great deal. Um, so where's the money going to come from? The NHS? We've got a situation of where the NHS now is malfunctioning big time, uh, of where we've got queues of ambulances waiting outside hospitals because they can't get beds uh, to put the patients who are in the back of the ambulances into the hospital. They've got a situation of where the beds in hospitals are used up because they've got nowhere uh, to put people into care homes. We've got a situation, I mean, it's just awful of where, you know, uh, uh, if anyone in my household, you know, suddenly went down uh, with something dangerous, i.e. life-threatening, I wouldn't phone an ambulance because the times that are taking for ambulances to come out are no longer an hour. Sometimes they've gone up. I mean, this is under life-threatening situations. I'm having a heart attack, some old man. We've heard it on the radio. I'm having a heart attack. I'm dying. I've been waiting five hours for an ambulance. And, you know, and five, six, seven hours later, an ambulance turns up, tries to save someone's life or they're already dead. But that's what's going on. And so are they going to cut the NHS? Are they going to cut education? Are they going to cut defence? Well, if they cut defence at the moment, the defence secretary has said, I'm going to resign. Uh, nowhere you look is there any easy uh, option. So when it comes to the public purse, you know, I we have all sorts of privatisation that isn't really real, like the railways. It's the government that pays, really. You know, they're offering, uh, you know, train drivers, uh, people who work on the railways, 5%. Meanwhile, the official inflation rate is 10% now plus. Are they going to take a pay cut? Under these, so everywhere you look, you know, there's no easy option. So there's, you know, there's not going to be, um, you know, some wonderful honeymoon uh, of where, you know, Boris Johnson comes in and starts to throw out candy uh, uh, to people. No, we're in a situation 
uh, of austerity. We're in a situation of cuts. We're in a situation of spiraling, spiraling strikes and class struggles. Uh, to me, all of that uh, is unavoidable. Yeah, the Tories are proposing even further draconian restrictions on trade unions. Will trade unions um, go along with it? Well, at least not initially, I don't think so, because if they do, you'll have a spontaneous rank and file rebellion. And that's what we face under a Labour government. Remember, under James Callaghan uh, in the late 1970s, it wasn't the trade union barons, as they were called it, that brought people out. It was ordinary workers who rebelled uh, against pay restrictions that had been agreed between the union leaders uh, and the Labour government. So Britain uh, is in a hole and there's no easy uh, way out of it. Anyway, so yes, it's not impossible uh, to have uh, Boris Johnson <laughs> returning. I just have to laugh. I can't, I can't help it, uh, uh, comrades. Uh, but in terms of the Tory party, just to give you this, what we've, what we've been seeing, and okay, I know that, there, that this isn't an election. What we've been seeing, though, is opinion polls, not only with Labour now on 50% plus, which we've never seen a, a vote like that. And again, this is opinion polls, not real votes, but we've never had a government returned with 50% since, I think, 45 early 50s. That's my memory um, of it, where you had the Tories and Labour separated by one, two uh, points. And I think, I think the Tories actually got 51%, mm, maybe in the 51 election. I'm not certain. Either way, you have to go back a long time uh, to see such a lead. Meanwhile, what we've got is not the Tories within contention. There's been an opinion poll putting the Tories on 13%. I've seen the calculation, you know, by the cephologists. And again, I've not looked this up. I've just been told it. <laughs> that would give them, I mean, because these things are very uneven and, uh, or, and not concentrated, that would give them six seats. That's about the level applied Cymru, the Welsh National, National Party. You know, I'm almost lost for words. I mean, the official opposition under those circumstances would be the Scottish National Party that only stands in, in Scotland. I know, I know it won't happen, or at least I doubt it would happen. And of course, that's why, um, you know, any talk, I mean, I've heard talk, uh, we want a general election. Well, no Tory MP, as far as I know, would want a general election because most of them, and we're not talking about half of them. Most of them would be in danger uh, of losing uh, their seats. And that includes Boris Johnson, uh, of course, who's in nowadays, not just a marginal, but a definite lose uh, sort of area. So unless they pulled something magical uh, out, uh, what we're talking about is a massive landslide win. And I know well, my expectation would be two years, but the whole thing could just unravel. Uh, the Tory party could split, split, split. You could, you know, the whole thing could just go. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm getting into science fiction now. And King Charles comes along and says, I think we need a general election in the national interest. And that, but I don't see them agreeing that I can't see how the Tories uh, would uh, behave like turkeys uh, voting uh, for Christmas. So 
it looks like to me at least at the moment and things are changing so rapidly i'm only saying this um you know on the basis of uh, how things look today uh is that uh, we're looking in the direction of a labor uh, government i think with a clear majority all the statisticians who are telling us at the beginning of Keir Starmer that you couldn't be done, you can't come back from an 80 Tory majority, it's never been done. My own reaction to that was, well, that's statistics. We actually need to deal with real life. It's a bit like me saying, <laughs> what's my position? I don't think Brexit will happen. It's stupid. Well, yeah, but stupid things happen. You know, parties you know, commit themselves to a course that appears to be crazy, is crazy, but they, 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 there's some sort of momentum that drives them forward. And we need to understand the forces uh, that drive them uh, forward uh, uh, to that particular conclusion. So, yes, uh, Brexit wasn't in the interests of, uh, you know, UK PLC. Uh, it wasn't in the interest, you know, other than this marginal section of, of capital. That's true. Uh, the markets didn't welcome it with, hey, this is great. Um, you know, uh, Singapore on Thames, all of that was nonsense. And yet they drove ahead and got the hardest Brexit uh, that you could uh, conceive of. So what a Labour government will look like, uh, I don't know it will be in a better position to do a deal with trade unions. But what's it going to draw on? I mean, we're talking about a situation where governments in reality, um, you know, account for a huge amount of uh, the gross uh, domestic uh, uh, product, have huge power. So while I've been talking about the market, we shouldn't ignore uh, the power um, of the state. Nonetheless, a Labour government presiding not over the sort of benign circumstances, relatively speaking, of Blair, New Labour uh, and all the rest of it, when they talk down what spending they were doing, uh, I don't see uh, the present circumstances being in a situation uh, of where the reality was that uh, Blair spent, spent, spent when it came to the NHS, when it came to education. I do remember comrades on the left talking about cuts. And I was going, what, what cuts? There aren't cuts. They're spending record amounts and increasing spending by record uh, amounts, but just weren't, how should you put it, announcing it uh, from the treetops. It would have been bad politics. And that was uh, um, Blair's approach. Anyway, uh, in my view, a Labour government always was possible. Uh, a Labour majority government was always possible. I was never certain of, about it, of course, but I was certain that you shouldn't discount it. And therefore, the left who were saying that Keir Starmer isn't interested in becoming prime minister, only wants to purge the left. I always thought that was just moronic. And the idea was uh, that this will really uh, be stupid by Starmer because he won't have anyone to hand out leaflets in the constituencies. Well, no, he'll have the Daily Mirror. He might have the Times. Uh, on his side. He's unlikely to have the telegraph and the mail, but hey, you never know, do you? After all, uh, Tony Blair did a deal with Murdoch and uh, um, yeah, Tony Blair had the sun uh, on his side. And that's worth an awful lot more uh, than 10,000 
20,000, 100,000 leaflets given out in one constituency, every uh, constituency. Anyway, that's my uh, uh, report on, uh, um, you know, what's going to happen. I don't know, uh, but it looks very, very bleak uh, from a Tory uh, point of view, very good from um, Keir Starmer's individual point of view, uh, but a huge challenge as far as the working class is concerned, because we're not only going to be facing the Tories who are in crisis, the chances are we'll be facing Keir Starmer, uh, who will be imposing austerity uh, either very soon or sooner rather than later, i.e. two years uh, time. That's as long as the Tories can wait. OK, sort of just wrapping up this section, just wanted to comment on quite a lot of the press uh, coming out. With, what do they call it? Uh, Britterly. Anyone heard Britterly before? It's the Italification. Um, the Britain becoming Italy. Um, anyone who knows anything about Italy, certainly I do, since 1945. No, I'm not that old, uh, but will know that their governments last... <laughs> what would be for, from a British point of view, an amusingly short period of time. Well, that's not quite true, but it is true. In other words, what we had from 45 onwards until relatively recent times was a huge communist party, which was in government uh, as a coalition partner, I think until 47, could be wrong, maybe it was 48, something like that. Uh, either way, the main party in Italy was the Christian Democracy, Christian Democrat Party, onto which they would bolt uh, various minority parties. And hence, you went through a whole series of prime ministers and a whole series of different coalitions. But in essence, uh, what you saw was Christian Democracy, which, which was backed by uh, the United States. And it basically put forward a social democratic um, policy. This is when the Americans, remember, were backing social democracy, um, neither capitalism nor communism. And they sponsored loads of journals and uh, the right wing of the Labour Party, uh, the so-called revisionists. And that was the common sense of the time. So I always remember when I was at school going to the left and uh, I said to teachers, sir, sir, or miss, miss. Um, it's capitalism that's a problem. They would just laugh at me and say, oh, you little fool of a boy, don't you know that capitalism no longer exists? We're not in Victorian times. We've gone way beyond uh, capitalism. We don't have things like unemployment um, anymore. Um, no, 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 you know, we've got Keynesianism. Anyway, uh, it was Ted Heath, I remember famously, at least to me, mentioned the C word, the unacceptable face of capitalism. And since then, of course, uh, the C word, at least in Britain, has become the norm. Anyway, Italy and the Italification of British politics. Well, if you look at Britain, there you are, Scotland. The majority in the Hollywood uh, Parliament want independence. They are fighting it in the courts. They will fight it in the streets. What they won't do, I think, is go for an illegal referendum. But hey, you never know, uh, given what's going on at the moment in Westminster. Uh, what you've got uh, is a situation in Northern Ireland, thanks to this marvellous uh, hard Brexit deal uh, that Boris Johnson got through, along with the help of Liz Truss, is that the um, executive Stormont, the parliament there, 
is uh, not functioning, it's not meeting, there are no ministers, um, you know, issuing orders, you've just got uh, officials who turn around and say, well, we can't initiate, you know, we can't take, we can make sure things don't go uh, awry, or at least attempt to, but we can't initiate new legislation, we can't, um, you know, because we're just um, officials. So that isn't uh, working. Meanwhile, uh, you've got Britain falling out still uh, with the EU, uh, Britain threatening uh, to unilaterally, um, you know, get rid of the, um, the, the Northern Ireland uh, protocol, um, let alone what I've just been describing in terms of the Tory party. Okay, that said, uh, what we ought to add, um, which sort of corrects the story, is yes, now, thanks to Sir Keir um, and the Labour right, what we've got is a safe second 11. What we've got is uh, um, a, a shadow chancellor that's reporting. I'm having very constructive talks with the city and bankers and big business, and they like what the Labour Party is proposing. And anyone who doubts that, just go along uh, to um, this year's uh, Labour Party conference. I know you can't do that unless you've got a time machine, but bear with me. Go to the Labour Party conference in Liverpool, and what you'll notice is the number of business um, stands uh, in the Labour Party conference. And that will be true, one would gather, uh, next year and the year after. Um, you know, i.e. the Labour Party is very uh, business friendly and business is going out of its way, as you would uh, with business, to court individual relationships uh, with Keir Starmer himself and his shadow uh, team. So it's not all bleak, uh, you know, for British capitalism. They do have um, a safe um, second 11 uh, that isn't under threat uh, from the Labour left in any meaningful sense. Indeed, as we've reported in this week's paper, you know, almost why bother uh, Sir Keir, who's still determined to keep, well, the most mild uh, left um, Labour types, um, out of parliament, i.e. get them uh, deselected or stop them going on long lists uh, in front of their um, the various constituencies where they've been hawking themselves around. There's still the order going out from Labour Party HQ, keep these people out. Well, as I say, why bother on one level? Uh, because when it came to the Ukraine war, when I think 11 of these people, I call them people, uh, signed up to stop the war coalition, social pacifist position, all Sir Keir had to do is say, well, if you do that, if you don't withdraw your names, I'm going to withdraw the whip from you. And instead of taking even from their point of view, a principled stand, you know, this is war or peace. We're not talking about some minor uh, question. They all, without exception, caved in. So what use is the Labour left as presently constituted? My own answer would be it's absolutely useless. It's completely useless. It's spineless. Uh, whether there's any hope uh, for the Labour left, I don't know. I don't bank on it. I wouldn't give up on the Labour Party. I certainly wouldn't give up on the trade unions. And if you're in the trade unions and they're affiliated to the Labour Party, use your block vote. Of course you would. And of course, you would use it 
promote decent candidates. The problem is at the moment, if you look at our good, well, our best uh, trade union leaders, such as, for example, Mick Lynch, uh, he says that the present dispute isn't political, um, wants a sort of contractual relationship with the Labour Party, isn't affiliated to the Labour Party. I think the biggest affiliate in terms of paying money is Unite. I think the one with more members is Unison, but Unite, I think, pays more money, headed by Sharon Graham. Well, it's saying, again, it wants a contractual relationship. I don't think she even turned up uh, to the Liverpool uh, uh, conference. So it, it's, I mean, you know, where's the agenda when it comes to high politics, the Ukraine war? Well, they want to steer clear uh, of that. That's far too dangerous. They will call strikes off, you know, uh, when faced with the death of an old woman, uh, let alone when it comes to the question of war and peace. So, yes, I think there's a truth there uh, to the Brittley um, <laughs> name. It's a lovely name, but with the caveat um, of uh, the Labour Party, uh, which, you know, an 80 majority, 100 majority, 150 majority, who the hell uh, knows. OK, having talked about Italy very quickly, because I don't want to go over an hour. Uh, we've just had uh, the first um, female uh, prime minister in Italy ever sworn in. Someone who comes, yes, definitely, no question about it, from a fascist uh, background. You know, the Brotherhood of Italy has its origins in MSI. MSI is the a continuation party of the fascists of Mussolini uh, and all the rest of it. Okay, so I read in Socialist Worker that we must act. Fascists are not welcome. And what we've got to do is go out and picket the Italian embassy. We've got to march on the UN Anti-Racism Day, which is sometime next year, the UN anti racism. That shows you how bold and uh, daring uh, the comrades are. Well, the fact of the matter is, I've already described Italian politics. And, <laughs> I mean, to me, that's equivalent of some right winger uh, looking at uh, the former leader of um, the Italian Democrat Party. And I know he comes from the Christian Democrat wing of it, but looking at Renzi, uh, the former prime minister, uh, in Italy and his party, the Democrat Party, and saying these people are communists. Well, some of them, a load of them are ex-communists. And even then, quite frankly, having lived through the 70s and being active politically in the 70s, and while I read Newsweek and listened to Henry Kissinger go on about the danger of Western European communist parties. Well, all you needed to do is meet a Eurocommunist in Britain, read Marx and today, let alone listen uh, to Enrico Berlinguer and uh, his call for a historic compromise between communism in inverted commas and Christian democracy to know uh, that the communist party in Italy uh, represented, and it was called the Italian Communist Party because of a name change. Anyway, it doesn't matter, but represented no threat whatsoever uh, to capitalism. Uh, that what we were dealing with in reality uh, when it came to Kissinger and all the rest of it is Cold War posturing. Well, okay, if the left want to go in for, you know, anti-fascist posturing uh, in order to chip, you know, uh, pick up a few cheap recruits, 
uh, if they want to develop a popular front with liberals, okay, so be it. But the danger is this, uh, that if you go around shouting fascism about everything, when you actually see a real fascist danger emerge in the real world and you say, that's fascism, you're in danger, in my view at least, uh, of getting into the Peter and the wolf type situation. Remember Peter cried wolf and all the villagers come out and they don't see a wolf, but they go, okay, well done, Peter. He cries wolf a second time. They all come out with their guns to shoot. There's no wolf. He cries wolf a third time. They don't come out. They say, oh God, it's Peter again, crying wolf. And I can't remember what happened. Didn't the wolf eat him up? And so it reminds me in that sense uh, of Germany. And I know there are other countries, but Germany was the classic case of uh, the official Communist Party there under the impact of uh, the so-called third period of labeling more or less everything fascist. So the social democracy in Germany became social fascist and all the centrist and right wing parties, of course, were fascist. So I've, behind me, I've got a book by one uh, Raji Palm Dutt. Raji Palm Dutt was the best um, theoretician that could justify you any line. Uh, the line might change as soon as the damn book came out, but the book I've got behind me is Fascism and the Social Revolution. I think it's dated 1934. In 35, Georgi Dimitrov announced uh, in Moscow at the last, uh, the seventh Congress of Comintern, the Communist International, the line had just changed. And we've junked uh, the idea that fascism is an automatic outgrowth of capitalism. Uh, you could see it, uh, uh, Palm Dutt argued, um, you know, in um, Roosevelt, in um, uh, not only Mosley in Britain, but the Labour government uh, in Britain, the Tory government in Britain, every government around the world, it's fascism. And therefore, you know, what's, what's the difference between that and Hitler? And therefore, yes, the Communist Party of Germany had the view a complacent view uh, that we didn't need to unite or even propose seriously a united front. Now, whether that would have come off with social democracy, I'm very skeptical uh, about, I have to say. Nonetheless, it did have the slogan, first Hitler, then us. It didn't realize uh, what Hitler represented, that he represented a qualitative difference. And this is really my argument with uh, Georgia Malini. Uh, Maloney um, in Italy. Yes, that's her background. But do we really think the left, the workers movement uh, in Italy represents the same sort of danger as German social democracy or German official communism? It's just bonkers in my view. We had mass workers parties. We had a huge trade union movement. You had a revolutionary crisis that hadn't been resolved. We had a situation in Germany where the ruling class could not rule in the old way, where the masses refused to be ruled in the old way, but couldn't come to power. Uh, social democracy had betrayed the revolutionary situation post-World War I in the blood of Liebknecht, in the blood of Rosa Luxemburg. And therefore, as Trotsky argued, I think correctly, that we need to understand fascism as a non-state fighting formation, which comes in 
in order to smash uh, the organized working class. And that's exactly what uh, Mussolini did in uh, Italy. And that's exactly what Hitler did uh, in Germany. In the, in the words of the famous poem, first of all, they came for the communists, then the social democrats, then the trade unionists, then the Jews, etc., etc., etc. Well, in Italy, let's look at the left. We had a very good article um, a week or so ago about the Italian elections. And sadly, we had a description um, of the left, what passes, and it was at a British level. And we're not talking about, uh, you know, the left or the Labour Party, which is equally as pathetic. But yeah, the Italian Communist Party, Communist Refoundation, Communist Party of Italy, wh whatever word, you know, permutation uh, you had. I mean, basically, we're on the 1% um, and minus beneath that. Well, they represent no threat to Italian capital. They don't, they're not threatening to come to power, uh, not threatening to expropriate the capitalist class. Uh, this is, to me, this is crazy uh, talk. And precisely, it disarms uh, the working class movement. You cannot turn around under those circumstances. You know, if the left did grow, if the left did become a serious force and say, well, this time there's a fascist danger. But this time we really, really uh, mean it because they'll just say, well, you've already had a fascist prime minister. We've already had a fascist regime. And we precisely get into the situation uh, that I know of in Turkey, uh, for example, where lots and lots of the comrades on the left would say that there's been fascism in Turkey since Ataturk, since the formation of the Republic uh, of Turkey uh, itself. So if you say, look, uh, the grey wolves, they represent a fascist. Well, no, they don't represent a fascist danger. We've had fascism. I don't know if how many years, what would it be, depending on what date you choose, but uh, since about 1920 or thereabouts or 22, whatever the particular date uh, happens to be. Um, you know, um, in, in the same way, um, yeah, um, that in India today, um, because of the BJP, which has got the RSS um, at the core uh, of it, it was a fascist organization, perhaps still is. I don't know. I'd have to look at it. But the idea that Modi's India is fascist today, if you talk to the official communists, both the CPI, Communist Party of India, and the larger Communist Party of India, Marxist, uh, which I think was a formation from the early 60s, not Maoist, as many comrades mistakenly call it. Anyway, if you talk to those two parties, which used to be very influential, still are marginally influential, they will assure you that Modi uh, is fascism. And what we need, of course, is the lesson from 35, Georgi Dimitrov, what we need is a popular front. Exactly what the SWP is trying to build uh, with uh, Stand Up to Racism. They, what they want to do is track liberals, and uh, why these comrades who've read their Leon Trotsky uh, pursue this line, well, I, I think it's historic reflux. And it's like looking at the co-thinkers of the SWP in Ireland, the um, socialist workers movement, pursuing a popular front government with Sinn Féin. Meanwhile, Sinn Féin is talking to the banks and big business and reassuring them how safe they are for capitalism. Um, no. Uh, we don't want popular fronts. We don't want alliances with parties that represent um, the bourgeoisie. 
um, in any um, shape um, or fashion. What we need is a united front of the working class. We need a working class uh, uh, government. I'm not going to go into Russia and the peasant question there. We don't have a peasant question to, to speak of in Britain. Anyway, that's just my take on that. Uh, how much time? 52. I'm going to not speak for more than an hour. Ukraine tax on power facilities. I don't know what strategic impact that will make. I don't know what tactical uh, impact that will make, but ordinary people will suffer terribly uh, if power isn't restored. Um, winter is coming, uh, the rain is coming, snow uh, will be coming. Meanwhile, of course, what is also coming, um, and again, I, I've had to look all this stuff up, so I'm not particularly au fait with it. I'm going to do my best with the various initials. What is also coming are American A-M-R-A-A-M-Z. I guess that this is um, some sort of, uh, well, I know what it is. It's a sophisticated uh, surface-to-air uh, uh, anti, uh, not just missile, uh, but anti-drone. Drones are easy to shoot down, by the way. They're slow easy target. Missiles, on the other hand, they're a different matter, but this stuff can shoot down missiles, which I would guess are coming in at supersonic uh, speeds. The difference, of course, with drones is that they, they can maneuver. Anyway, when I looked this stuff up, I found, much to my amusement, that one of the, ver well, one of the associated pieces of technology to these missiles is called uh, NASAMS, and I'm I'm guessing that the last bit is surface to air, air missiles, but the N was interesting, uh, stood for Norwegian, Norwegian something or other surface. Anyway, in America, you'll be pleased to hear it's not called Norwegian, presumably it's on license. It's called national, national air something surface to whatever. And this is what is being sent uh, to Ukraine as we speak. Britain is sending it. I presume they're sending. I don't know whether they make them in Britain or not, uh, as they do um, Saab, um, N-laws, you know, um, these um, shoulder-launched uh, uh, missiles. Either way, I did look up the price and uh, compared with a uh, Ukrainian, a Ukrainian, compared with a Iranian drone, which I think come in at about a quarter of a million, which they're raining down, at least that's what the press stories tell us. Uh, these cost 23 million a piece, not for each missile, but for uh, uh, the batteries. But also, of course, what's happening. So in other words, uh, they want to put uh, Ukraine in a position where they can shoot down uh, what Russia is sending against them. Uh, my version, being an armchair general, is what you do when they um, put in such systems, you send 10 times the, the number. So instead of sending 10 drones, send 100. Drone. Something will get through in the end. That would be the calculation. Anyway, what is also happening as we speak is the uh, Russian authorities in, uh, we're talking about Kremlin, have imposed martial law on three uh, newly recognized um, republics, would you call them? Um, oblasts um, um, that have been um, incorporated into Russia and also what they've done I don't know whether that's the Kremlin or whether it's the high command in Ukraine. And I'm talking about the Russian forces in Ukraine. What we've had is the ordering of a civilian evacuation 
of uh, uh, Kearson. Now, worthwhile, I haven't got a map in front of me. If I was up to the technology, I would bring up a map. On, uh, what you've got is Kearson, the city, as opposed to the oblast, which sticks out there. That's Russian occupied. It's one of the cities, few cities, it's a big city uh, that the Russians took. They took it um, intact. I presume it's got a very large Russian speaking population. But this sort of sticks out there because what you've got going there is the river Dnipro, that's the Ukrainian way of saying it, or Dnipriere, which as I understand it, that's the Russian way of saying it. Either way, you've got this huge uh, river and the Ukrainians have blown up the bridges uh, that connect the city uh, with the Russian um, area, which now stretches all the way from the Dnipro all the way to, the, um, to Russia proper. Right. Um, so what we're talking about last time I read it is 20,000 troops. Maybe they've been reinforced. Uh, maybe they've been um, wound down. Either way, if Russia loses that, that would be a huge defeat uh, for Russia because this is a big city. On the other hand, uh, this is just me uh, guessing, so it isn't worth um, anything. Um, the fact that they're ordering the evacuation of civilians tells me that what they're doing is preparing for a siege. Uh, in other words, evacuate the civilians. We don't need to feed them. Uh, we've got food uh, and ammunition. We can get ammunition across from the river. We can do this. We can do that. Uh, uh, we dig in and we basically say to the Ukrainian forces, come on, if you fancy it, because anyone will tell you uh, that street fighting is deadly. Uh, for the invading army, you know, it 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 takes a horrendous toll um, on the attacking force because you dig down, you 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 go into the sewers, you go into the basements, uh, you go into the underground shelters, and in former Soviet cities, uh, we're talking about shelters that are built for large numbers of people that are nuclear proof, right? So we we saw that in Mariupol. Right. So in the steelworks, you had a nuclear proof um, bomb shelter. So that's my guess. Uh, but it's only a guess. They, they could, on the other hand, I could read, uh, you know, like uh, when I finish, I could read, oh, uh, the Russians are evacuating their army and I could be proved to be utterly wrong. And I'm just talking bullshit. But that's how it appears to me, uh, at least. Meanwhile, what we have is NATO supplying uh, the Ukrainian forces with winter. Uh, clothing, um, because um, while winter um, isn't going to be as severe as it is in Siberia, what we're dealing with is continental weather, and that means an awful lot of mud, an awful lot of snow, and bitter, bitter uh, cold. So to what extent um, offensive operations are... Um, you know, uh, uh, doable, um, uh, I, I can't uh, comment on. Uh, but yeah, you could dig in. And that's that's my suspicion uh, for what it's uh, uh, worth. Okay, very quickly. Oh, one minute, Stan, so I won't speed up. Um, China, 20th Congress, third term. Z, yes, he's the man uh, at the moment. Why uh, former president who? Uh, was led out. I don't know For what, it, what it's worth. It's worth nothing. Uh, he criticized in the closed session. The Chinese Communist Congress is real, right? 
uh, as opposed to the Tory rally that calls itself a conference. Um, so there you have a open session and then you have a closed session. It's a closed session that people get up and make a criticism for what it's worth. I don't think the guy was ill, but I, got, I, I don't know. Maybe he made a criticism. That's all on China. And then two, two points very quickly in my last, uh, I'm abusing the chair now. Two points from socialist worker, abolish the metropolitan police. Jack Conrad says, hurrah, I agree with you comrades. What is gonna replace the metropolitan police? And why do they need to be replaced? It's because of racism and sexism. Oh, for God's sake. No, it's because they oppress us, right? Why do you wanna abolish the army? It's not because it's full of sexism and racism as it no doubt is. We wanna abolish the standing army. We want to abolish the police force, but crucially, what we argue, and that goes back hundreds of years, all the way back in mythology, yes, to the Romans, but to Machiavelli, to bourgeois uh, radicalism, to the Magna Carta, to the Glorious Revolution and the Bill of Rights, to the American Revolution. What we stand for is the popular militia. And you'd find that demand in the parties of the Second International, every party bar none, as far as I know, including our own glorious Labour Party in their first manifesto, stood for the abolition of the standing army and a popular militia. Of course, the SWP ain't going to say that, because what they want to do is ride on the anti-racist, anti-sexism, liberal bandwagon. Pathetic. Socialist worker, we're in solidarity with um, just say no to oil. Yes, in solidarity uh, in terms of if I was on the jury, I'd say, yeah, you did it. Uh, I, I'm going to let you off. But we ought to be critical because, as we explained in this week's work, that there's a danger with such minority actions of them being kidnapped, taken over, uh, by the forces of the state. We all know about spy cops. We all know about the socialist revolutionaries in Russia, you know, how they assassinated czarist ministers, you know, under the leadership of czarist agents, right? And how hundreds of comrades were arrested and sent to exile in Siberia. Uh, these comrades who are carrying out these actions are clearly uh, motivated, clearly sincere. Uh, but we stand against minoritarian uh, bids uh, and the idea that, that uh, you know, Extinction Rebellion and all these breakaways or different aspects of Extinction Rebellion have got, it's all you need. This is their theory. You can look it up. The, the, the leaders quote it. It's in their original manifesto and all the rest of it. All you need is 3.5% of the population and you can bring about um, radical change. Well, that's maybe true, according to the academic studies of, um, you know, um, the civil rights movement in America, trans rights in America, gay marriage in Britain. I don't know, but statistics might. But you try doing that um, in, uh, you know, 1920 China. And anyone who tells me that a sit down demonstration uh, will do it, let alone when the Japanese invade. This is the way to get rid of the foreign invaders who are carving up China. I just say, well, you're just crazy. So XR is absolutely right. We need systems change. You know, I've already described capital as a being in its own right and its interest in expansion. 
it's not about persuading as uh, um, you know, various people say, you know, Liz Truss or Boris Johnson, you know, to be, you know, introduce nice climate change measures. This is all rubbish. Uh, COP20, whatever it's going to be in Shalma Sheikh in uh, Egypt, capital is predicated on self-expansion and it will not be bucked. And if you buck it, capital will expand somewhere else. So you need systems change. And that isn't a minority. Uh, question. Not 3.5. You have to have the majority, clear majority, who know what they're doing on your side and organized. We, you know, in Russia, uh, we had Soviets. Uh, we had the army split. We had the majority of the army on our side. We had the peasants uh, on our side. We had the overwhelming majority of the working class uh, on side. We had a big, we had the vanguard of the working class organized into the Bolshevik party. That's the sort of uh, uh, organization we need if we're serious about systems change, if we're serious about getting rid of capitalism. So, yes, we admire the spirit uh, of these people, but the idea uh, that you, you know, throw a can of baked beans uh, at uh, the glass cover of uh, a Van Gogh. Well, okay, next time, why not put a bullet through it? But that won't do it. Next time, take a bullet and uh, take a pot shot and uh, hit the prime minister. That won't do it. They'll get you another prime minister. Take a pot shot and gun down King, King Charles III. That won't do it because there's another bastard uh, lined up to replace him. It's the system, stupid, that we need to be aiming at, not the symbols of the system and certainly not ordinary people. Uh, who are going about their daily business and precisely it opens you up. I saw in a right wing paper, could have been the Daily Mail, might have been the Metro, I don't know. Uh, JSO has blood on its hands. Why? Because inevitably, if we're talking about gumming up uh, the M25, someone is on their way to hospital and they need to get to hospital because they're dying or their mum is dying and their mum dies while they're at the back of the ambulance or in the, in the car and they die. Uh, that's not a good idea, uh, uh, comrades. So no, uh, we need a much more serious approach. So while we'll defend you, yes, I was about to say against the Home Secretary's repressive legislation, what Home Secretary? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who's the Home Secretary? I don't know, but you get the message. We are poor. Uh, the, the, the latest round of repressive legislation, why the hell it's needed. There are enough repressive laws in Britain anyway. Why you need more, this is for display to the Daily Mail and the bigots that make up the rank of file of the Tory party. Got nothing to do with anything else. Anyway, thank you, Stan, for... Um, sorry about the seven-minute overrun. Um, there you are. That's it. <laughs>